Um, we're going to be in Isaiah 49, 1 through 16, and it's just an incredibly beautiful passage um, that has a lot to do with the love of a mother, as you will see. So um, let me pray, and then we'll read the scripture together, and then we'll, we'll get into it. Lord, I want to thank you so much um, for showing your love to us the way a mom shows her love to her children. And I ask, Holy Spirit, that you would help us explore that love today. Lord, that we would all sense your love as we explore this scripture. I ask, God, that you would just touch our hearts. Thank you for the beauty of this passage. And thank you for the beauty of our mothers. I pray that they would, you would bless them all, that you would... Um, all the moms that are here, but all the moms that are not here but represented here like my own. Lord, would you bless my mom today, wherever she's at. I pray that she would feel joy and peace and full in her life. Lord, I thank you for my wife, Nicole, that shows such incredible love to our son. I pray that she would feel full as well today. We love you, Lord, and we, uh, we look to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, let's listen to this beautiful passage here. This is, this is Isaiah 49, 1 through 16, and I want you to listen with, um, with your imagination. He says, listen to me, you islands. Hear this, you distant nations. Before I was born, the Lord called me. From my mother's womb, he has spoken my name. He made my mouth like a sharpened sword. In the shadow of his hand, he hid me. He made me into a polished arrow and concealed me in his quiver. He said to me, you are my servant, Israel, in whom I will display my splendor. But I said, I have labored in vain. I've spent my strength for nothing at all. Yet what is due me is the Lord's hand, and my reward is with my God. And now the Lord says, He who formed me in the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him and gather Israel to himself, for I am honored in the eyes of the Lord, and my God has been my strength. And this is what he says. It is too small a thing for you to be my servant, to restore the tribes of Jacob and to bring back those of Israel I have kept. I will also make you a light for the Gentiles that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. This is what the Lord says, the Redeemer and Holy One of Israel, to whom, to him who, has, who was despised and abhorred by the nation, to the servant of rulers. Kings will see you and stand up. Princes will see you and bow down because of the Lord who is faithful the Holy One of Israel who has chosen you. This is what the Lord says. This is verse 8, if you're following along. In the time of my favor, I will answer you. In the day of salvation, I will help you. I will keep you and will make you to be a covenant for the people, to restore the land, and to reassign its desolate inheritance. To say to the captives, come out, and to those in darkness, be free. They will feed beside the roads and find pasture on every barren hill. They will neither hunger nor thirst, nor will the desert heat or the sun beat down on them. He who has compassion on them will guide them and lead them beside springs of water. 
I will turn all my mountains into roads, and my highways will be raised up. See then, see, they will come from afar, some from the north, some from the west, some from the region of Aswan. Shout for, the, for joy, you heavens. Rejoice, you earth. Burst into song, you mountains, because the Lord comforts his people and will have compassion on his afflicted ones. But Zion said, the Lord has forsaken me. The Lord has forgotten me. Can a mother forget the baby at her breast and have no compassion on the child she has born? Though she may forget, I will never forget you. See, I have engraved you on the palms of my hands and your walls are ever before me. Your walls are ever before me. Um, what an incredible passage. Um, we're going to take a detour this morning to Isaiah for Mother's Day because in this passage, God likens his love to the love of a mother. That's what's going on here. It's beautiful. We'll get to that in a second. But first, I want you to notice that this passage declares a sweeping, glorious promise to a people who have been demoralized a people who have been absolutely dejected. This is to the nation of Israel who at this point is in exile to Babylon, and they're in Babylon, exiled there, because of 800 years or so of chronic rebellion against God, chronic sin. In Deuteronomy chapter 18, Moses told the nation of Israel before they entered into the promised land, if you go and you obey me, if you follow my precepts, if you follow this covenant, if you do your bit, you will be blessed. And it goes into this long, detailed description of what that blessing will look like in inheriting the land. But then about halfway through the chapter, it turns and says, however, if you do not do your bit, if you don't uphold to your end of the agreement, of your own end of the covenant, you will be cursed. And it goes through this detailed description of what this curse will look like, culminating at the end of other nations will be sent in and will raise you to the ground and will take you off captive into all places of the earth. And that, here we are, 800 years previously, the children of Israel go into the promised land and there's this chronic failure, this chronic disobedience, um, this repeated rebellion and God laboring with them and talking with them and reasoning with them and, and, and ushering them back through various leaders and various events and yet only to have them go cold again and fall from him again. And finally, at the end of this, Isaiah starts to cry that Babylon is coming. Assyria is coming. Jer Jeremiah began to cry, Babylon is coming. The Assyrians came and they wiped out the northern kingdom of Israel, took them, and they were scattered from that point forward, and then Babylon, after they defeated the Assyrians, Babylon came, and they, in 586 BC, and they, as Moses proclaimed, they raised Jerusalem to the ground, they uh, tore down Solomon's glorious temple, and they took away Israel captive back in exile, back to Babylon, into their land. This is where we find ourselves in this passage. They're a dejected, demoralized, frustrated, hopeless people. Their heads are low. And yet, 
there's this glorious, this, this passage for the first 13 verses. It's just glory. It's this, this splendid, uh, far-sweeping, incredible, optimistic, futuristic plan that God has for the people of Israel. In other words, he's saying, even though you're dejected, even though you're disillusioned, even though you've been disciplined and you're scattered, I'm not done with you yet. I've got these incredible plans. I'm going to save you. I'm going to bring you back. It's just incredible. And then he says, that, and even that's too small of a vision. Just to bring you back to the land, which would be incredible enough, just to bring you back to the land would be too small. I'm going to use you as my servant. This is one of the five servant songs in the book of Isaiah where he describes this mysterious servant who will come. And they're kind of interchangeable. Isaiah is the servant. Israel is the servant that's failed. And then there's this future mysterious servant that will come that the, Old, that the New Testament repeatedly identifies as Jesus. He says, you will be my servant, Israel, to export my salvation to every nation. It's too little to just think about you coming back to this land. That's good, but that's too small of a vision. Notice how grand this vision is that God has. In the middle, not when they're doing well, but when they're, do, when they're at their worst, God has this grand vision for them that's bigger than what they could even imagine. To them, it's hard to even imagine that they could come back. Israel, the only nation in history, as far as I know, that was a nomadic people that were gathered again in 1948 to become an actual nation. It happened. And yet, God says, but that's too small. No, we're gonna, I'm going to use you to be a light to the world. I'm going to export sal my salvation to the rest of the world, and everyone's going to come seeking me. In fact, that's what he's talking about later on when he says, you will come from, you will come from the, not just the north, that would have been Babylon, but notice he says, they will come from the east, they will come from the west, they will come from the south. That's God's way of saying people, because they've heard of the salvation of Yahweh all over the earth, they will all pilgrim to me, to Zion. They will come to worship me because of you. And it's just this grand vision builds to where the, he gets the cosmos involved. At verse 13, it ends, he says, shout for joy, you heavens. I mean, it's just this slow build, build, and then this explosion, this proclamation to the earth, to the cosmos. Shout for joy, you heavens. Rejoice, you earth. Burst into song mountains. Why? Because the Lord comforts his people. I will have compassion on his, on, on, he will have compassion on his afflicted ones. Why is all creation shouting for joy? Because God has resolved the tension in the greatest plot line of the cosmos. How can God dwell with people again after their great, tragic, chronic, evil, wicked sin? How can God dwell with his people again? That is, the, that is the, where the Bible hinges. That's what it's leading us through. There is a breach. There's a problem. God making a way. And when he does make that way, the, the, the fabric of the universe will tingle and rejoice. The mountains will cry out. The heavens will rejoice. He did it. 
He did the impossible. He made it all right. God is going to do all of this through Israel, his servant. This is what this declares. Again, when they're at their worst. This is not when they're in this upward trajectory. They are just about as defeated as it possibly can be. And yet, God speaks this tingling vision to them. I still have these thoughts for you, says the Lord. This incredible calling. And, in fact, in verse 5, he says this calling is an honor. And so if you've got this incredible cosmic vision, you've got, so I want you to see how crazy this passage is. Israel interrupts him in verse 14 and speaks back a very um, defeated, pessimistic, disillusioned response. There's this, God is saying, I've got this grand plan for you. Even the heavens will rejoice, and you're a part of this whole universal, multi-ethnic new people will come to me because of you. And look what they say, verse 14. But Zion, that's another name for Israel. But Zion said, the Lord has forsaken me. The Lord has forgotten me. That's their response. Discouraged. Unbelieving. Skeptical. Yeah. They can't be shooken out of it. Even after this proclamation, this vision that's set forth, they still are like, well, no, we're done. I don't feel like you love me. I don't feel like you're coming for me. Really interesting. This, is, this fascinates me. This response to this just gripped my heart. As, and especially as we veered away from 2 Samuel, it was refreshing. Because <laughs> I, was, I was sitting in 2 Samuel 13 for the last two weeks. So this was just beautiful. It fascinated me that in spite of this credible, incredible promise of hope, God laying out this bright, incredible future... Saying, you're not done. All is not lost. In fact, there's so much more to come. In spite of all that, Israel comes back and says, but I don't feel it. I don't believe you. Have you ever felt that way? Have you ever felt? Maybe someone's tried to encourage you. It's sweet and it's nice. Thank you for trying, but you know, no. I've, I've done too much too many times. My destruction is too complete. Maybe if we would have had this conversation 40 years ago, maybe I could, maybe, you know, I could have, but you know what? It's, it's too much now. I'm so tired. And what I love about this, this kind of, it, well, first, I want to point out the character of God. God does not, here's what God does not say. God does not say, oh, suck it up. Just just believe it anyway. Stuff your feelings and believe. No, God allows himself to be interrupted, and he turns to deal with it. He turns to deal with it. Why? Because I think, I think that this is a common, I think this is a common um, thing that all people go through. And I think we have to deal with it. I think God knows, okay, in order, for me, in order for you to get to the substance of this vision, I have to deal with what's going on in your heart, the skepticism that's going on in your heart. I think that the skepticism we see in Israel is a feature of all, of all human experience. Um, I read this quote when I was by Richard Lovelace that just took my head off when I was 
studying for this, it, it almost took me to tears. He says this. He says, It is an item in faith that we are children of God. There is plenty of experience in us against it. I want to read that line again. It is an item of faith that we are children of God. There, are plenty of ex- there, are plenty, there is plenty of experience in us against it. The faith that surmounts this evidence and is able to warm itself by the fire of God's love instead of having to, instead of having to steal love and self-acceptance from other sources is actually the root of holiness. Okay, I think what he means is that real faith is decided in the intersection between what we crave and what we still do not have. I think that's what he's saying. I think that's the crucible. Real faith is stirred up and built and, and even decided, is one, you could say, is won or lost in the intersection between what we crave and we know we need and we even hope for to some level and what we still do not have, the evidence that speaks against it. And in the tension... In that tension, there are two narratives. One narrative that is saying, I love you. I'll never give up on you. I still have plans for you. And another narrative that says, no, you're too far gone. You've done too much. You should just be happy with what you got, considering. Why ask for more? Why shoot for the moon? In other words, the reality is that there is experience and evidence both inside of ourselves and outside of ourselves, that directly contradicts what God is telling us through the Bible. And that is a normal, that is what you can consider going on in everyone's life is a war of narratives. Does he love you or does he not? When Israel, let's just take Israel as a case study. When Israel looked inside of themselves, what do you think they found inside of themselves? They saw chronic disobedience and sin. They also saw a clear warning in the Mosaic Covenant that if you keep doing this, you will be cursed. They saw all of these things. That was evidence that made sense to them. No doubt. I'm too far. They saw their own repeated unfaithfulness to the covenant. So the evi- what was the evidence saying to them? We're too far gone. We've done too much, too many times. The promised land's now out of our reach. Yeah, we could have fulfilled God's promise, but now we can't. And when Israel looked outside of themselves, what was the evidence or experience that you think they saw? Well, what did they see? They saw the rivers of Babylon. They saw they were in a culture that did not fear Yahweh. They saw captive, they were captive. They were oppressed. They were no longer a people in a lot of ways. They were scattered. So they've got this body of evidence and experience, both in and without, that's directly contradicting verses 1 through 13. Have you been there? Have you been there? I want to believe, but how can I? I want these, oh yes, you know, on one level, these promises, they call to me. To the very roots of my being. But then there's the skeptic that says, yeah, but you know. And that's what I mean that real faith is decided here. 
Real faith is decided here. And Richard Lovelace is saying that you can't just go on living like that. Do you know that? That's what Richard Lovelace is saying. You can't just go on living like that if you don't surmount that evidence somehow. That's what his words. If you don't surmount those experiences, if you don't find a way to move beyond mental subscription to, of doctrine to heart-affecting you know, life transformation, if you can't find a way, then what are you going to do? He says you're going to steal love and self-acceptance from other sources. That's what you're going to do. If you can't find a way around the evidence, what are you going to do? You're going to steal love from your career or from you're going to try to get it from your spouse or you're going to try to get it from an achievement. You're going to try to validate yourself somehow unless you can get around this kind of evidence that's screaming against you. That's what he's saying and that's what I mean by real faith. We are, we're people of faith. You're putting your trust in something. The question is, what is it? You're loved eternally, but I feel forsaken. That's what's going on in our passage. 1 through 13, you're loved, you're loved eternally, and I've got a plan for you that fits in my redemptive historical plan that would blow your mind. 14, 15, and 16, I don't, I don't think so. I think we identify with the tension there. And God lets them feel this way. He doesn't say, just believe it, Stop grumbling and just get on with it. No, he lets them interrupt this grand vision and turns to deal with what's going on in their hearts. And what does he give them? What assurance does he give them? A mother's love. He gives them the love of a mom. Look at verse 15. Let me show you. Can a mother, this is his response to their discouragement. Can a mother forget the baby at her breast? And have no compassion on the child she has born. Though she may forget, I will not forget you. Gosh. I've been reading that for the past three days. I get chills every time. Okay, before I explore this, I need you to notice something here. What does God give despondent people? What medium does he give despondent people? He does not give them a discourse he gives them a rich image. He says, imagine something. Okay? That's really a big deal. How does God get information, just words, from your head into your soul where it actually can make a difference, where it can change who you are from the core out? How does he do that? Through the imagination. This is not... Uh, you know, he's been doing this forever, but we do this today. The, the, the best way we transport information to the members of our culture is through film, through novel that would make you imagine things that are freighted with meaning and freighted with knowledge that tell you who you are, that give you a context of your identity. Right? That's, that's what's determining, whether we like it or not. And it's hard for us to understand this. We live in a very independent culture. We like to believe that we're self-made people. The reality is that's just not true. You are, by and large, the product of the culture that you're in. You can't walk down the street without seeing image after image that has stories within it to, to frame who you are and where you fit. That's what's going on. And a lot of that determines your outlook on life. The culture that the Israelites were in was Babylon. 
Hence their discouragement. Yesterday, we were in a 30-minute line for ice cream. And um, in the sweltering heat, that's why I'm glowing in my face, not because I went up the mountain and spent time with Jesus. Actually, it's because I was waiting in a line for ice, an ice cream cone bigger than my own face. It's like they put a pint of ice cream on a little cone, and I loved every second of it. But in line in front of me was a man who had a tattoo in Old English here and a tattoo in Old English here, and on this arm it said, destined to fail. And on this arm it said, born to lose. And I thought, how sad. Of course, I'm thinking about this. I'm thinking about narratives all day long, you know. Do I need this ice cream? Well, the narrative says that I do. But do I? You know, that's what's going on in my mind all day long. So I see this guy's tattoos, and I'm thinking, oh, gosh, how sad would it be to go around life as that is my filter by which I'm looking at life. I'm going to fail. I don't, and maybe he meant something different by that. I don't know. But in my mind, I can only assume that was a projection of what's going on inside the poor man's mind. Can you think? Can you imagine that? I think, well, I think if we're honest, a lot of us can to a certain degree. How does God combat that? Not with a discourse, not with a lecture. He gives us an image. And this is a huge key to our spiritual journey. God gives life-changing theology through images designed to push theological concepts into the uh, molecular level of our being, of our soul. He is saying, this is what scholars call a theological metaphor or a theological simile, a theological image. And what it means by that, this is who I am, God says. What do we call that? Theology, the study of God. This is who I am. I'm like a mother nursing her child. Image. It's a theological image image. It's meant to not just get you thinking about something cognitive. It's meant, well, it is cognitive, but with your imagination. It's meant to get you to imagine an image. It's a theological image. And in the Bible, here's what you need to know before we go further, because I want you all to use your imaginations this morning. Before you go, in the Bible, when God gives us a theological image and metaphors, um, you know, something that he's describing himself with, he is saying, I want you to see how I'm like this, And I want you to see how I'm unlike this. It's both. In other words, this morning God is going to say, my love for you is like a mother, and my love for you is also not like a mother. We're going to explore both. This is very important to understand. When we're talking about God, he is simultaneously like and unlike the image that he's putting forward to us. And that will explain this verse. So, when we come across a theological image like this, we need to ask ourselves... In our case, how is God like a nursing mother? And how is God not like a nursing mother? Let me show you. So what do you see with the image provided to you here? Think of it in your mind. We have a mother nursing her child. And you're supposed to picture it in your head. Some of you moms can easily go there, right? You're supposed to picture it. How is a nursing mother drawn to her child? Any ideas? Yeah. Yeah, okay. Eye contact releases something called oxytocin, which forms an incredible bond with, between mother and child. It actually draws them close. It causes a feeling of delight and absolute contentment. 
Delight and joy and contentment. Yes, yes, absolutely. There's an emotional bond. What about a physical bond? Oh, yeah. Sense, yes. Like you, like, like you smell, absolutely. Yep, absolutely. Yep, moms can smell something that reminds them of that and bonds them. There's also a physical, just very biologically speaking here, there's a physical draw between moms and women, and that is, especially this here, it's uncomfortable. You nurse because you're uncomfortable. There's something about a mother that is, that pull, that is pulled toward their child because you have to start nursing so that you can nurse more. You have to start nursing or your milk won't come in. And the more you nurse, it means the more you're going to nurse, right? And so at some point, you become uncomfortable. You've got to go to that child. So there's this great, so literally something about in the, in the physical makeup of the mother is pulling her towards her child. And then there's this emotional piece of, of joy and contentment in doing it. What else? What's, what's the child doing? Giving or taking? Crying. Crying, maybe, sure. Not when they're nursing, though. I mean, not in, in our experience. Noble was the happiest when he was doing that. He cried if he didn't nurse, yeah. But what is the, what is the child doing when they're nursing? Giving or taking? Only taking. That's it. And the mom is only giving. I mean, you know, moms, your life is oriented completely around your child. 24 hours a day, seven days a week, you are thinking about the health of that child. And that child is completely and utterly 100% dependent on you. It is just take, you know, think, think of every other relationship, every other friendship. There's a give and take, right? Even, let's be honest, even marriage. There's a give and a take. Not so with a mom to an infant. It is, it is take, 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 take. That's all it is. And yet, in other words, there's a sense of it being, even though you give, you're, not, you're not doing anything to which you merit my favor, you're not earning my affection, and yet I have it to give in spades. It's an, it's an unconditional kind of love. Do you hear what God is saying here? God is saying, I want you to think of me like that. My very being is drawn to you. My very being is drawn to you. I delight in you. Even though you've only taken from me, even though you've only chronically failed me, it's who I am. I am love. I am drawn to you. Moms, do you get that? I've, my mom, okay, my mom used to think I was the fourth person of the Trinity. I remember I had to tell my mom when I got in trouble at school, my mom would always go to bat for me. She'd be like, I'm sure he had a really good reason for doing that. And I would, I would have to tell my own mom, no, mom, I actually didn't. I did that because I was being selfish. I, I, and she's like, no. That woman, man, she would, she would do anything for me. She's got this unconditional quality of love. She will never give up on me. We have that. Moms, you have that for your kids. Parents have that for their kids. And God is saying to an extent, my very being is drawn to you. Even though all you do is take from me, I'm not tired of you at all. I love you. I can't help but come to you. In the prophet Hosea, God says this to Israel. He says, how can I give you up, O Ephraim? 
He tells in, in chapter 11, he tells the story that God raised his kids and they were toddlering about, and when they fell, he scooped them up, and there's all these memories, and then they just became these. I mean, think about your kids, how it rips your heart out when they become rebellious and they want nothing to do with you, and just the pain that's with that. God gets you if you're in that position. Chapter 11 of Hosea, his, the kids run, and he's mad, and he's angry, and he, he even at some point says, I'm, I'm done, and then a few verses later, he says, but how can I give you up, O Ephraim? How can I stop pursuing you? You are my heart. I can't. Yeah, Richard. Yes. Yes, he's appealing to, uh, yes, the part of you, the part of us that can relate. Absolutely. Yes, this is, this is the Bible's well-meaning, well-meaning insult to us. You're like a child, and you don't know. Right? No, yeah, Noble, noble uh, you know, his, his, he is, I mean, what's gone viral in our house is the phrase, that's not fair. <laughs> it's not fair. That's not fair. But the thing is, we know more than him. We know more about, fine, you know, why, why can't you buy me, what does he want, he, you know, he, why can't you buy me this thing? Don't you have a thousand bucks laying around? You know, he doesn't get how money works, he doesn't understand, and so at, and at this point he's not going to understand it. He's eight years old, so we say, hey, you're just going to trust me that we know more than you. This is what God is saying, look, you depend on me every second of every day. I do not depend on you, and yet I'm drawn to you unconditionally. In fact, what does he say next? He says, can a mother forget the baby at her breast and have no compassion on the child that, has, that she has born? Though she may forget, I will not forget you. The translation is a little wonky here. The Hebrew does not say, though she may forget. In the Hebrew language, it actually says, though she will forget. You might think, well, what does that mean? What does that mean? Well, God is saying, I am both like and unlike a mother. And here's how I'm unlike a mother. A mother will forget you. She gets old enough. She might get senile or, or uh, Alzheimer's or she might die. All of us, we have stories of how we've, we've lost our mothers at some point or we're losing our mothers. You know, that, that's how it works. They won't, as unconditional, as ironclad as that love is, God is saying, and yet it can still be broken. And yet I, am, I will never fail. I'm not going anywhere. I will never forget you. I'm eternal. As strong as the bond of a love is that mothers have, even that love will be broken. And God is saying, I'm like a nursing mother. My very being is drawn to you. I can't help but come to you. I won't stop pursuing you. I have this vision for you. You know, moms, you know, when you have this child, all of these dreams go into this child. This, that's verse 1 through 13. God is saying, I've got these incredible plans for you, and I can't give them up. But I'm not like a mom. Unlike a mother, I will never forget you. I will never fail you. I am the mom that keeps going. Nothing can break my bond of love for you. Nothing. In other words, God is saying, you see a mother's love. It's nothing compared to my love for you. It's nothing compared to my love for you. It's just a dim hint 
of what my love for you is. But he doesn't stop there. Look, he says, can a mother forget the baby at her breasts and have no compassion on the child she has born? Though she may forget, I will not forget you. And this is powerful. Look at He says, look, I have engraved you on the palms of my hands. Your walls are ever before me. What's he giving us? Well, in one sense, he's giving us another image, isn't he? A very gruesome image, actually. The image that, um, would have been striking. It was sometimes true in the ancient world that um, the master would engrave his name on his slave's palms, would tattoo it on his slave's palms. But never was the name of the slaves tattooed on the master's palms. That's what he's saying. He's saying, I'm going to, I'm going to have, I have you on my hands. So we think, oh, that's so sweet. But it's actually not because the Hebrew word here um, is not the specific word meaning tattooed. It actually is a very specific word. The word engraved is a word that means with a, with a hammer and a chisel or a spike. This is a metaphor that it's an image, it's a metaphor that points, so here's where, it gets, here's where it gets real. It points to a prophetic act, an event. Here's the thing. Up to this point, what has this all been? Even as sweet as it is, it's been words. It's been a very sweet way to say, I love you, like a mom. And also not like a mom, I love you. And that, any uh, women know that that can only go so far. At some point, it's going to be, I need you to show me. Otherwise, we still remain skeptical, right? A lot of you have given your wives cards for Mother's Day, and that's very sweet. That's awesome. There is some value in that. But there's, it's nothing like backing it up with acts of love. Yeah, Kristen. The word inscribed, engraved. That's, that's what it is. It's, it's to be engraved with a hammer and a nail, or a, an, an awl and a chisel. Yeah. And it refers to, of course, we Christians, we think of what? We think of Jesus. Yeah, it's the Sunday school answer. Of course it is. It's, Jesus. it's referring to an act. In other words, here's what he's saying. This is how you can know that I love you. I actually am going to do something. And for us, he did do something. What did he do? Well, first, what did they say? Yahweh has forsaken us. What did Jesus say on the cross? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In other words, uh, John, the Apostle John in 1 John chapter 4, verse 10 says, this is how you can know the love of God, that he sent his son to be the propitiation for your sins. That's how you can know. In your aloneness, in your forsakenness, in your loneliness in all of those things this is how you can know he sent his son to take on that forsakenness for you here's the thing how do you how can you know that you can always you've got all this evidence against you you look inside and you've got sin and failure and anger and things you still struggle with and you and you you think man I'm, i feel forsaken those that evidence is screaming a narrative to you that you're forsaken that you're lost that you're done that you've gone too far 
There is not just words, but there's an event in history where God sent his son to die on a cross and he screamed out there, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because God actually had, in that moment, he forsook his son because it's what you did deserve. It's what Israel did deserve to be forsaken. I do deserve to be forsaken. But God forsook his own son So that you and I will never be forsaken. You can stand before God this morning with absolute confidence that you are accepted in the beloved if you choose to believe it. Which narrative will you believe? Because here's the thing. With this act of Jesus dying on the cross, it significantly turns the volume down on the other narrative. But it doesn't silence it. It'll always be there. This side of heaven, you'll always have that critic. Always. It's from the beginning of time. Remember? Adam and Eve, the snake comes up and says, did God really say? You can bet the farm that's going to happen to you. Maybe even when you leave this morning. God loves me, and then maybe you'll get in an argument, or maybe you'll deal with some part of yourself that's still not conquered or maybe you'll or whatever it might be and you'll go gosh did he really though did he really though did he though and you'll go out into this babylon of a culture that we have and you'll see all these other images and freighted with meetings of who you actually are with expectations especially if you're involved in the culture of the shame and honor culture of social media oh you know your your life will feel less than unless you are, you know, you know. There's this. We were looking at this one couple the other day. They are like perfect, young, chiseled couple. You know, swimming in some pool somewhere in Spain, and we just think, man, I should probably have a life like that. They're, I mean, look at them. They're fulfilled. That's what happens. That's the culture that we ingest. Those are, what, what is that? It's an image. Those are images that are telling you this is the good life right here. This is the good life. If you're not married to Ken or Barbie, and if you're not swimming in a swimming pool, and if you, have, if you don't have to even budget for your groceries, you don't have to look at the, at the, at the price at the end of the day, of all those things, that's, that's true contentment. That is coming at you all the time in this culture. And you'll start to go, oh, this is, we start to, mm, I'm forsaken. I still have problems. I still argue with my wife. I still, man, I yelled at my kids. I, I didn't put away enough for retirement. I, and on and on I got, man, I, I'm forsaken. The war of the narratives. You get to choose. This is the crucible by which faith is formed. What do you need? You need the love of a mom who says to you, I love you no matter what. Whether you, have, whether you can retire at 25 in Hawaii or whether, or whether you're working until the day you die, I love you no matter what. Whether your kids turn out to be a success or whether they're not, I love you no matter what. I love you. 
I'm, I'm, there's something in my being that's just drawn to you. I can't help it. I am love. I can't help. It's who I am. I'll never stop loving you. I'll never stop. Like a mom. And unlike a mom, I could never forget you. I've done everything. I've engraved you on my hands, literally. I became forsaken so that you would know, know, one event that you could know You'll, you're never for, you, can, you can scream against the narrative in the storm and say, no, I am loved. I am loved. Let me ask you this. If you were convinced of that narrative, if that truth was pushed into the very chromosomes of your being to the point where you were, you were feeding off of it, you were breathing it in, breathing it out every moment of every day, what kind of person would you be? If you knew beyond a shadow of a doubt in the core of your being that you are loved unconditionally and that God delights in you, what kind of person would you be? A different than what we are now, right? Absolutely. That is, that is the point that we grow or the point that we lose. I want to invite you today to think of a mother's love the unconditional love of God that cannot forget you. I want, to, I, I want you to invite you today to ask the Holy Spirit to, through the imagination, pull that in to the core of who you are and let it make its impact and change you. How do you do it? Well, read with your imagination. Okay, let's just get really practical. There's a war going on for your imagination. You need to understand that. There is a war going on for your imagination. Why? Because whatever rules your imagination rules your heart. Jesus said, store up your treasure, that's whatever's gripped your imagination, in heaven, where moth and rust. There is a treasure that you're, look, that you're working towards so how do you get, how do you, how did, that, how did that thing or that person become your treasure? Through an image, through images, through the way you were raised, the things that you were raised watching, the things you're watching now, pop culture, like I said, the, the social media culture, all of those things are shaping who you think. That is what's warring for your imagination right now. How do you combine that? Read the Bible with your imagination. Picture it. Read a passage, close your eyes, and pray it in. And think about it. Think about it. Imagine it. Talk to each other about it. Have fun with it together. Get each other's perspective. What you're doing is you're just keeping the image alive and you're driving it into your soul the more you talk about it together. You know, the Bible, um, most people were illiterate in the ancient world. The Bible was read aloud it was heard. It was literally listened. You literally listened to the voice of God when you, when you heard the Torah, Torah read to you. And it was discussed within a community. Do this with each other. Change the subject. Talk about things that matter. Become experts at relating things to the Bible and theology. Listen to good music. Listen to sermons or podcasts or whatever it is that will get the Bible into the imagination of your heart and your mind. 
What rules your imagination is king. And that means, look, stop ingesting other images. I know that's hard to hear, but look, seriously, stop. I really hope someday, (laughs) my dream is that someday we will look back on social media the way people look back on the 40s and the 50s and go, I can't believe we were smoking all the time. <laughs> we were smoking in our kids' faces. We were smoking inside. We had restaurants that were filled with smoke. You know, you know, and now, back then, they looked back then, they, th- they, they did not know it was bad for them. It was like chewing gum. But now they know. I hope someday with social media we'll go, I can't believe we were just doing that all the time. Because it, it is now unprecedented science coming out to how that is literally changing the function of your brain through image through image. Lessen that. I'm not talking about a moral do or don't. I'm talking about what's good for you. I'm talking about you are what you think. Pray. Spend time and ask God to move these things into the image of your heart. Slow down your life. Spend time. You, you need to think. In order to think, you've got to slow down and Think about it. Breathe. Breathe in. Breathe out. These are things that are going to give you health. These are things that are going to give that are going to saturate your imagination and saturate your mind. Think of the cross. Think of the beauty of Jesus. I was reading this um, brains. This uh, what was he? Psychoanalyst. Anyway, he wrote this. Not a Christian. Wrote, wrote this book. Who he would. Uh, hook people, it was about religion and what it does to the, to the brain, not the mind, but to the brain. And he, would, he would hook people up with electrodes up to their brain, and he would say, I want you to imagine Jesus, the face of Jesus, turning towards you with love. And I want you to do it, and do it enough, and do it enough. He would track their brain, and eventually they would, be, they, they would relax, their blood pressure would go down, they'd be filled with joy, Um, euphoria, those types of things. Not a Christian. And then he would also say, now I want you to picture God rejecting you, looking down on you, judging you, kind of like the Santa Claus version of God. He sees what you're doing, he knows, and he's coming for you. And eventually he wrote in his books, he cataloged enough people, came up with, he said, uh, post-traumatic stress-like symptoms. How you imagine God, what narrative you're listening to, matters. It matters. And it comes down to, you're going to walk out there today, you're going to see a whole lot of images. And this is why church cannot be just a Sunday event. Be with each other. Talk to each other. Call each other. Go to coffee with each other. Have people over to your houses. Talk. Imagine together. Be a community together. It'll change your heart and mind. That might have been the shortest sermon I've ever given. We should take out your journal, mark it, write it down in history. Yes, got it. Let's all stand together. Lord, I am so grateful for your love for me Lord, I am so much like Israel where you have called me and I did nothing to earn your favor. 
I only took from you and I only take from you. I'm completely and utterly dependent on you. And yet, even despite all your care and love, I have chronically disobeyed. I have gone my own way. I thought that you were better than me, or that I was better than you, rather, that I knew better than you. And I'm just a kid. And I've gone my own way, Lord, and I deserve exile. And there's been lots of times where I have thought in, in my own depression and, you know, I'm forsaken. I don't think God loves me anymore and I can't blame him. I've got all this internal and external evidence that's just hard to refute, screaming at me. Look what you've done. How could God love someone like me? And yet, you boom through the voice of Isaiah I love you and I'm going to restore you and I've got plans for you and I'm bringing you back to me. And so many other people are going to be blessed because of you and helped by you and loved by you. And so many people are going to know my love because of your love to them. Oh, Mike. If you could just see how I look at you. Hmm. And I'm also thankful, God, that you didn't just leave it with words, but you came. In the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And you took on my sin and my disaster and my failure. And you took my exile on the cross when you said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? so that I'm forever accepted. I can stand before you with complete confidence that I'm loved. I pray that for my friends here today. That all shame and all guilt, that that evidence would be surmounted. That we would not draw love or steal love or self-acceptance from other sources, like Richard Loveless said. That it wouldn't drive us to idolatry, but Lord, we could believe you, and to that degree, become healthier and healthier, loving you and loving others. Lord, I ask this, thanking you for the love of a mother, for my mom who's never given up on me and never will, and beyond her dying breath, you never will, for it's your love that she draws on. Thank you, Lord. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen.